Hello and welcome to your Active Beyond the Byland podcast. I am Mirko Paradiso and for this week and only for this week I'll be covering my colleague Evie Corey who is out of office at the moment. In this episode we will be checking the latest news related to the energetic crisis and how this is affecting the life of the Europeans and we will also try to discuss possible immediate and long-term solutions to this situation. Also, today we will talk about the conference on the future of Europe, six months after its official start, and we'll check how is it going, where it is going, and what we should learn from disappointments of discussions among the institutions and the citizens. The energetic crisis has recently brought the prices of energy to soar, and this has created numerous concerns in Europe. Here I am today with Frederick Simon, our energy and environment reporter, our interactive. Thanks, Frederick, to be joining us today. Uh, so... The first question, of course, is how the crisis is affecting the life of the Europeans, especially those of the low and middle income classes. Well, everyone is affected, uh, obviously, by the rise in energy prices, but people are affected differently, of course, depending on their incomes. Now, you have to put that in perspective with the numbers uh, related to energy poverty uh, around the European Union. And so according to the Commission, there were around 31 million people across the EU who were considered to be living in energy poverty, meaning they were unable to keep the houses warm in winter or had to choose between heating or putting food on the table. And that proportion, um, of course, could now be going higher um, uh, because of the energy crunch and the COVID-19 crisis, which is uh, pushing more households uh, closer to poverty. And according to some estimates, that could be around 80 million people who could be pushed uh, towards energy poverty because of this uh, energy crisis. Now, these numbers may look uh, huge, uh, but in fact, uh, they're not totally unrealistic if you look at the scale of the population across the EU. We're talking about a population of around uh, 450 million people. And already before the COVID crisis, uh, some um, 110 million people in Europe were already considered to be at risk of poverty or social inclusions. So with, with energy prices now going up by a factor of two or four in some EU countries, it actually seems quite plausible, in fact, that millions more will fall into energy poverty this winter because of the energy crunch. Okay, thanks, Frederick. What, but what about the measures that have been taken so far to tackle this crisis? Have they been effective in helping the Europeans? So, yes, you can say, of course, that uh, the measures that have been taken so far are indeed effective. What governments have been uh, doing um, since uh, uh, a number of weeks uh, already is basically to cut taxes on energy um, and uh, to supply vulnerable uh, customers, customers with uh, special support schemes. For example, in France, the government has started distributing energy vouchers to the poorest households. This is a scheme that was already in place and the French government decided to add 100 euros in addition to what the, uh, the these households were already entitled to. So this is something that is already being rolled out in countries like France and similar schemes have been put in place in countries like Greece, for example. So the strategy um, um, put forward by these governments is, is working. Uh, and is, is helping um, households uh, deal with the situation, at least now, 
in the short term. Now, obviously, this is not something that you can do um, for, uh, for the long term uh, because uh, the money doesn't grow on trees and so uh, the government cannot just continue uh, subsidizing households like this. And this is something that will eventually also be felt in, um, in the, um, uh, the treasury of, uh, of these member states. And so this is uh, not a sustainable policy. Okay, what's the long-term strategy of the EU? What do they want to do to prevent any similar crisis in the future? In the long run, the effects of the EU strategy uh, will take a lot longer to be felt. Um, so the, the longer-term strategy of the European Union is to decrease its reliance on imported gas um, and uh, fossil fuels generally and accelerate the deployment of homegrown renewable sources of energy, as well as increasing energy efficiency, for example, through programs like the renovation wave, uh, which is supposed to uh, decrease the energy consumption of households. So all of that, of course, is going to make a difference, but the effect is not going to be felt in the short term. In fact, these programs take years, even sometimes decades uh, to materialize, and so it's not the kind of thing that you can expect uh, can bring immediate results for this winter, uh, at least uh, for sure, uh, consumers won't see the difference. Um, now, in 10 years from now, probably they will see a difference, but certainly not uh, in the short term. Okay, let's talk about nuclear energy and gas. There have been a lot of discussions going on on this source of energy that could be implemented as transitional sources in the EU green finance taxonomy. Could this make any difference in the short term? Well, uh, that has no influence at the moment, and it won't have an influence in the coming six months. The taxonomy is only about investments into new infrastructure or energy production capacity. So it's something that gives a long-term signal to the market for investors to put money into one particular source or energy of energy or another. And so it's not something that is going to affect the price situation in the short term. In the long term, of course, um, yes, this is something that could have an influence because the taxonomy will decrease the cost of capital for energy companies. And so um, this could have a positive influence on retail prices for consumers over the long run. But this is by no means guaranteed because energy companies can, of course, decide uh, to pocket the difference and, and, and keep those profits for themselves. There is absolutely no guarantee that the, 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 the consumers will end up uh, benefiting uh, from that. Okay, my, my last question for you is a geopolitical one. The EU imports a lot of gas. Do you think that finding new agreements with the supplier countries, especially Russia, of course, could lead to some immediate solution? Well, obviously, yes, Russia has been at the center of concern in uh, this energy crisis. And um, actually, Moscow has said that the situation could be improved greatly if a new pipeline delivering gas to Germany, pipeline called Nord Stream 2, is allowed to open uh, soon. Um, so you may be aware this pipeline has already been built. It's currently waiting approval from the regulatory authorities in Germany and also in the European Union. And Moscow has said, you know, give, give approval to this uh, pipeline and we can start delivering new gas. 
The problem is that Russia could be doing this already now. It has been withholding its deliveries of gas to the European Union through the existing pipelines for some times now, for some time now. And it seems uh, it's um, likely to be using this uh, crisis to pressure Germany and the EU to deliver the final authorization for Nord Stream 2. Um, so even if the authorization was delivered tomorrow, there is no guarantee that Russia wouldn't put pressure again on Europe maybe not um, next week, but in the future, maybe next year, for example, if there is a major diplomatic fallout on any international issue, for example, the situation in Ukraine. And this is what the detractors of Nord Stream 2 have been warning, uh, have been warning about, that the pipeline uh, Nord Stream 2 gives Russia um, even more leverage to exert pressure on the European Union and, and use gas um, as a lever for its uh, foreign policy. So if anything, the EU uh, can only hope um, to, to receive more deliveries from other suppliers um, uh, for, for the time being, other suppliers like Norway or potentially Algeria. In fact, Norway has already started delivering more gas to the EU, but the quantities so far are not yet enough to make a, a huge uh, difference on the market. And so what we're seeing now is that uh, the European countries are starting more and more to make use of the of their existing um, reserves. Uh, countries like the Netherlands, for example, still have reserves of gas uh, in, uh, in the North Sea and uh, could be tapping uh, a bit more into that in order to ease uh, the situation. But these resources are, are not infinite. Uh, and so, um, effectively, the European Union is uh, more and more dependent on imports and external suppliers. So with Russia becoming less and less dependable um, as a supplier, um, we're increasingly now reliant on other countries um, like, like Norway, which uh, fortunately have plenty of gas reserves and, and could start delivering more. But the current situation on the market is so tight at the moment that even a country like Norway is not in a situation to dramatically increase its production and deliveries to the European Union in the short term. Many thanks, Frederick. We will see how this important and as well interesting issue will develop in the next future. And of course, keep following us on your active for the latest updates. Let's move on now to the second topic of this podcast, which is the Conference on the Future of Europe. Started last May, is bringing citizens to discuss about the future of the EU and its institutions. I have here with me Eleonora Vasquez, who is following for Euractiv the conference. So, Eleonora, thanks a lot for being here. Hello there. How is the conference going and what have been the highlights so far? Well, I think it's going well. Uh, now the panels are uh, meeting online. There are four panels with 800 citizens that are uh, elaborating uh, recommendations uh, for uh, MAPS, but also for uh, uh, the Council and uh, the Commission, because the whole uh, conference will be uh, evaluated uh, by the Parliament, Council and the Commission on the end of the process. Um, in uh, December and in January, uh, all the citizens of the panels will uh, meet online to uh, um, 
draft the, the recommendations because uh, uh, for the panels is a three-stage uh, uh, process. The first one was to uh, highlight uh, the interest of, of the four thematic, thematic panels. Um, uh, the second stage uh, was to uh, elaborate uh, tendencies and orientations uh, of, the, um, of the thematics. And then the, the third stage uh, uh, will uh, be dedicated to uh, the recommendation uh, themselves. Um, I think that uh, it is nice to see people discussing, uh, you know, as an uh, elder uh, person from uh, Cyprus discussed from uh, um, a young uh, teenager from uh, Italy or something else. It's uh, a very interesting and uh, uh, constructive moment of democracy, I think. All right, but despite the low interest for the conference in the media, the number of the visits to the online platform and the endorsement are encouraging. But could the institutions and the media have done more? Uh, yeah, I, I want to do um, a premise for this. Um, I think, yeah, the, the participation in the online multilingual platform is uh, encouraging in a context where uh, nobody are really speaking about the conference. But there is uh, one reason for this. Uh, for journalists, it's easier to talk about uh, a polarized debate rather than uh, to talk about... Uh, polite people discussing about how to reform the EU. Because uh, it is easier to uh, explain and to give voice to uh, a yes or no position uh, towards something, for example, Brexit or migration or, uh, I don't know, sex, uh, say, uh, sorry, uh, same-sex marriages, uh, for example. Uh, it is not easy to, to give a direction or to do a breaking news about a, a deliberative democracy process. Um, for this reason, I think the number uh, are low if we compare with you know the number of uh, uh, European residents and uh, citizens, but are encouraging a context that nobody uh, are uh, are really talking about uh, the conference uh, on uh, the media. What I suggest to to journalists to be uh, uh, to pay attention to the next proposals. Um, that uh, will come very soon in December and in January, so they can discuss about at least uh, some recommendations. For okay, but for what we've seen so far, what would the future of the conference look like? Do you think it could turn into a permanent exercise of discussions among citizens and institutions, or will it be a one-time exercise? Will it actually lead to some change in the future? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. Uh, I believe that... Uh, uh, it is not predictable how the conference uh, uh, will be finished because uh, we have to see how will be uh, the follow-up. Uh, I mean, uh, how the recommendation will be considered uh, and if uh, some recommendation uh, will uh, become uh, laws, basically. Um, because uh, on this depends also the, the whole experiment. Um, I believe we need more and more uh, deliberative democracy processes like, like this, also because we can implement and learn uh, from mistakes to do a better, I think, edition also of the conference in the future, because it's, uh, it's a very innovative way to, to, to discuss democracy. I believe we are in a very hard time where uh, um, there are a lot of uh, forces that uh, 
are uh, against the concept of diversity, against the concept of inclusion and so on. We can see, for example, the situation with the Belarus, we can see it with the situation as well uh, with the Visegrad um, states in, uh, in Europe. So I believe that if we can find a way to get people involved in a polite and nice discussion that they, they feel heard from institutions and they can really be part of a policy making process, I think this is something uh, they can do. For instance, uh, they, there are sort of ex so some experiments like this, for example, in the region of Brussels, uh, and uh, they are uh, instituting, uh, I'm sorry, uh, they are uh, uh, working and building on a committee dedicated to deliberative democracy uh, processes, for example. And I think the EU can do the same because uh, it, the EU has the tools uh, and the resources to do that. And I guess that's all for today. Thanks a lot, Eleonora. I am Mirko Paradiso and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We'll be back on your feed next week with our EV Corey at the microphone. But until then, you can subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good rest of the week. Bye.